session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. I'm sure you can hear my voice is a little bit off. Uh, I think I lost my voice yesterday with family having a good time, but this morning I woke up uh, not able to talk so well, so we'll see how it'll make it through the show. But I apologize if it's a little bit hard to hear, if I sound a little bit different, that's all that's going on, um, but we'll, we'll make it through the show. Before I get to the book of the week for this past week that I'll talk about tonight, the book of the week for this week is No Drama Discipline by Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. No Drama Discipline, the whole brain way to calm the chaos and nurture your child's developing mind. So I'll be talking about that on next Monday's show. And as always, if you have books uh, that you'd like to suggest for me to read and talk about on the show, send those suggestions to me my way on my social media. And thank you for those who have made recommendations in the past. All right, the book of the week that I will talk about tonight is An an End end to Upside-Down Thinking by Mark Gober. An End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. And uh, I kind of mentioned this Wednesday because I just started the book then, um, but I saw this book in the bookstore and it was talking about consciousness and that was something I am very interested in. Lots of the books I've read recently have touched on this subject of what is consciousness, how do we understand consciousness, and the hard problem, which is how does consciousness even come about, or does the brain produce consciousness, and if so, how does it do that? And really, we don't have good answers for these questions. Um, And so I thought this book, it said, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness, I was curious to hear what this author had to say. And a lot of the book was about consciousness and this theory that he puts forward that consciousness is something that exists in a way even before matter or before things. So we think that the brain produces consciousness, um, but as he puts it, it's kind of like flipping things around where consciousness comes first. And it's in the way this may be essence or thing that exists in the world and the universe Um, and that the brain actually, in a way, is secondary to that. And there's no way to really say which one is right or wrong when it comes to that. Really, they're both theories. But this book, I didn't expect it to be so much about paranormal, or what we think of as paranormal types of things, Um, things like extrasensory perception, ESP, uh, remote viewing, um, 
the concept that people can see something that's far away. For example, you're sitting in your living room, but you can imagine what's happening in a room 500 miles away, 5,000 miles away. And so there was a lot of research or things like near-death experiences or people who are mediums who can talk to the dead. And all of these follow from his theory or conception that he's talking about where the consciousness exists as something outside of us or it's not like it's created by the brain, but that it just exists. And so I was definitely very skeptical about a lot of what I was reading. And so I'll talk about what he discusses in the book, but it also made me aware, as is always the case, but really come face to face with it, that we have biases, and I definitely have biases about what can be true or can't be true, or what is science or is not science. Because what I found was that I am skeptical of, for example, someone saying they're psychic, that they can predict the future. And even I was telling my brother Powerhome last week, I was walking or it was maybe two weeks ago and someone came up to me and he said, I can see, he just kind of went on this whole thing of, I can tell someone is out to get you or has bad wishes for you. And I can figure out who it is. Basically, he was trying to sell me on going to him to get a psychic reading and um, I wanted to go get my coffee. So I went and got my coffee, but I let him know I was not interested. So I am skeptical of people who say, for example, they can see into the future, talk to dead people, those types of things. And I realized that when I was looking at the research that the author Mark Gober discusses in this book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, I definitely approached it differently than I do in, let's say, this book I'm going to read this week, No Drama Discipline. If they talk about a parenting study, I'll still be healthy skeptic about it. I'll look at it in a way, be like, let's see what I can uh, determine about the study and if it seems sound. But I'll be far less skeptical than I was about the research that was discussed in this book that was talking about um, people, for example, being able to affect things with their brain, uh, random number generators, things like that. And so I realized I was not really keeping an open mind in the same way that I would looking at other research, even though sometimes he was citing research being done, for example, at Princeton. Um, so it wasn't just by someone in their house saying, I figured this out. So that was definitely something I had to be face to face with. And there is um, these types of dogmas in science. And so as much as we think of science as this unbiased, objective thing that we have, and we use the scientific method, and when we use the scientific method, it is free of all biases. But we know that's really not true, that as humans, we are still the ones that are studying things, and we bring our biases, we bring our judgments, we bring even our wishes of what we hope to see, or our fears of what we don't want to see, our expectations have impacts, even if we still try to control for them. Or of course, as a scientist, you can make your name based on research that you've done. So of course, as much as you want to believe you're this unbiased scientist, there's going to be a big part of you that doesn't want what you have become famous over to be disproven or shown to not be as significant or as important as you found it to be. So we have to accept these things. And I had to accept it reading this book that I wasn't reading it as someone trying to understand something. I was already coming in with, you know what, these things can't be true. So let me figure out why they're not true.
And uh, that's what we see also in the scientific community. And he talks a lot about that in this book, that many scientists, they won't even read the research, but they'll say it has to be fake because they think they already know that it can't be true. Uh, but he has a whole chapter and, and he talks about throughout the book, quantum physics and quantum mechanics and how so many things related to quantum physics and quantum mechanics are counterintuitive things that we would not expect or do not seem real to us based on how we interact with reality um, for example these things called uh, entangled um, i don't know if they're entangled matter or enti entangled particles where something uh, if you affect a particle here, it can affect some interconnection with a particle somewhere far away. So they're not actually physically connected in the way we think of it, but somehow they have an effect on each other from a distance. And Einstein even tried to disprove it according to what he talks about in this book, but was not able really to do so. So there is things that we observe that are hard for us to explain. And we shouldn't just dump, jump to the conclusion that because we think it's not true, it can't be true. And I think in science, there's even this um, almost superiority of, well, we don't believe in these types of things. They have to be fake, extrasensory perception, mind reading, or affecting the future in some way. And almost people will pride themselves on not believing in those things, even if they haven't looked at the data because we've assumed they can't be true. And I think we have to be aware of these biases that we have, that it becomes like a dogma, like something we just accept, that if you're a quote-unquote scientist, a hard scientist, you believe that all these things have to be fake and untrue, and you won't even dare to look at the research or to hear what people are, are seeing or observing. But you see in the book, even the U.S. military was using or at least studying uh, psychic phenomenon. So... Um, and other people have used it in different ways. And so my own understanding is, I definitely would not say I believe that these things are all true, that he talks about a lot of different topics, for example, as I said, talking to the dead, affecting things physically, um, being able to communicate with each other without, you know, any way of talking or communicating. I'm not going to say all of them are true. And a lot of times there were things I was skeptical of course, but even still, there were things that didn't quite make sense to me, or there was lots of different conclusions that could be drawn from what he, that were different from what he was saying. But nonetheless, do I think it's possible that there are some things that we don't really quite understand or can't see, that maybe people can affect things in different ways, or maybe people can be in touch with certain things that we don't think they should be able to be aware of? I think it's possible and I still want to hold that possibility open, I wouldn't necessarily say because of that, if someone came up to me and said tomorrow uh, or the next plane you're going to go on is going to crash, so don't go on that plane, I wouldn't go on that plane. But I'm saying I do think it's possible that people can have some awareness that we maybe don't think we should be able to have an awareness of and that we don't have a way of understanding the why or maybe I should say the how, but just because we don't understand how doesn't mean it can't be true. Also, I'm not saying it is true, but I'm saying that I wouldn't just say, well, because I don't think I can figure out a how for something, then it can't be true. Because, uh, again, quantum physics shows us that there's a lot of things that we can't quite understand, we don't get, but we accept because we observe things about it. Or um, 
that the world is made up of 90-something percent dark matter or dark energy, something they don't quite understand. But because of measurements they make, they see that we don't see everything or we can't detect everything. So there has to be more out there than what we can see or know. And also he talks a lot about consciousness, which is, as I mentioned, the thing that drew me to the book based on the cover. And yes, I did, again, judge a book by its cover. Um, that we don't quite understand how consciousness works and how does the brain create consciousness. I, To me, it is still baffling or it really does um, blow my mind, no pun intended, to think about how neurons, these cells, can create things like memory or awareness uh, or the ways that we think about things. It really is so interesting, fascinating, and I'm happy that there are people studying these things, but definitely we don't have satisfactory answers to those kinds of questions of how these things are happening. And so we have to continue to study them. And so as he kind of defines consciousness as the awareness that we can have, when I say I am reading this book, that I is the conscious part, his theory that he proposes that is based on other people's um, ideas is that consciousness is really everywhere and that our brain essentially is like an antenna that taps into that consciousness. And that's why actually sometimes, because it's almost like a filter also, when our brains are less active, we get more in touch with this consciousness, this stream that is out there in a way. Um, you might not think that makes sense to you. And to me, I'm not quite sure I agree with that way of looking at things, but that's how he explains it in this book. But for me, it was interesting to recognize that I have this bias, even when it comes to looking at science. And then within science, we definitely have big biases that we don't want to even study certain things because we deem they can't be possible or we don't want them to be possible. And even as scientists, the reason why I think it could become like a religion is that they can become even self-righteous, that they'll look down at people who try to study certain things that to them are not um, as in a way valid or important or they think it's silly to even think it's possibly true. And they have that same self-righteousness that you'll see and people who can be religious, not all people, of course, but sometimes people who are religious can have a tendency to feel I'm better than others. And scientists sometimes, or people in the field, or even people in general, can have that same kind of feeling of looking down at others who want to study something because they don't think it's true or they think it's ridiculous. But I think we have to keep more of an open mind. So reading this book, I tried to keep that an open mind. I was definitely skeptical of much of what I read, but it did make me think, and it really didn't necessarily change my mind because I did before even think it's possible that some people have connections in ways that not everyone does, or maybe we all have that potential, I don't know, but not the ways that it was in sometimes presented in this book. So nonetheless, that was an end to Upside Down Thinking by Mark Gober, and the book of the week for this week is No Drama Discipline by Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, what I want to do next is um, the books of the week or something that uh, it's been a great goal for me that I started two years ago, and I 
might talk about goals at the end of today's show or on Wednesday's show. But it was a goal I made uh, 2017 before New Year's. And I really didn't think much of it, but I'm glad I did that and to read a book a week and then make it part of the show. And so in 2017 and 18 together, I read over 100 books and it's been something great for me personally. I hope for the listeners as well. But what I wanted to do now is to do a top 10 uh, books of the year from 2018. So these are the top 10 books that I read last year that I, for me, were the most meaningful. I got the most out of them. And when I say books of 2018, uh, only a few of these books were released in 2018. So these were the top 10 books that I read in 2018 as part of the books of the week for the show. And I didn't really rank them 10 to 1. So what I'll do is I'll just do the I do them in chronological order. So basically starting from the ones I had done first all the way up to the last ones. And actually the last book of the year uh, made it onto this list, but I'll get to that one as number 10. But the first one was from January 8th, uh, the book of the week from that week. And it was A First Rate Madness by Nasir Haemi. And this was a really interesting book looking at great world leaders in history and um, as the title says a first rate madness how a lot of these great leaders were not great despite their mental illnesses but actually because of their mental illnesses and it was a very interesting concept that actually some parts of mental illness although we consider it illness of course there's negative parts to it it can be very harmful and distressing for that person and people around him or her, but that actually there can be some benefits. And I think that's an interesting way to recognize the value of being different. That was actually another book, but I didn't make it onto this list was the power of different, but this idea that we can think of people as being ill and just say you have this illness, but recognize that sometimes it's not just an illness, but someone with ADHD, for example, might be more creative, although they can't focus, there could be other things they do well. But in this book, uh, Nasir Ami talks about leaders, for example, like Abraham Lincoln, who struggled with depression his whole life, and how having depression might have made him more realistic, but also more empathic, and able to see things from both sides, so that that might have aided him in, for example, leading the country through the Civil War, that he was able to be more empathic to both sides and possibly also to the slaves as well, uh, who, who, of course, were suffering the most, but that his depression wasn't something that hindered him as a leader but might have even helped him as a leader. So as he discusses in that book, uh, in good times, you want a very steady leader who actually would not have these types of mental illnesses like mild bipolar or depression or other things like that. But during crisis, sometimes it's actually you want a leader who's a little bit different in this way. The second book on the list is from February 12th, Against Empathy by Paul Bloom. And I've talked about judging books by their covers. In this case, I kind of disliked this book by its title, Against Empathy, because I um, a big proponent of empathy and think of it as a good thing. So I remember seeing it a few times at bookstores and thinking, gosh, I don't like that title. But then I said, you know what, even if I don't like it or despite not liking, maybe that's why I should read it. 
But it wasn't exactly against empathy as if empathy is a bad thing. But he did discuss in that book how empathy can lead us astray sometimes because it can make us narrow, narrowly focused on certain things and it make some unwise choices. And he talked about radical or rational compassion or kindness trying to approach things in that way. And it was quite interesting. Book three on the list from April 2nd, The Developmental Science of Early Childhood by Claudia M. Gold. And I got a lot out of reading this book. I first thought it was going to be a how-to book, how to uh, go through things like breastfeeding, sleep training, potty training, things of that nature. And it was a lot less about that, but more about approach to parenting and childhood and working with parents. Uh, of recognizing how important it is, for example, for parents to have a stance of curiosity about their child and try to understand what they are doing. And it makes so much sense because kids are always communicating to us. It's not always clear what, and they don't always know what. But when we pay attention to their behaviors, we realize that they don't just do things to bother us or to be annoying, which sometimes as a parent, it can feel that way. Parents will even say, I almost feel like she's doing this just to bother me or to annoy me. Uh, but if we take a stance of curiosity, we, we can recognize that there's some reason, there's something that your child is trying to communicate to you. And if you take that stance of curiosity rather than thinking they're really actually just trying to bother you, it can help you understand your child better and make some adjustments and changes that can be beneficial to your child and to yourself. But the book was really a good one I'd recommend to uh, all parents and to uh, people who work with parents, The Developmental Science of Early Childhood by Claudia Gold. Book four was from May 7th, and that was Difficult Conversations by Douglas Stone, Bruce Patton, and Sheila Heen. And I really enjoyed uh, this book. It was very practical, and I always talk about how important it is for relationships especially but really everything in life to be able to have uncomfortable conversations and another way of saying that is difficult conversations and this book was really good at going through step by step what you can do to prepare and what you should do to um, make the best of your difficult conversations one big thing for me was how it talked about you shouldn't look at blame but try to understand contribution, how both parties have contributed to whatever situation it is you're dealing with. Blame leads to judgment and looking backwards, but contribution is more about understanding and what you can do moving forward. But this is a great book. The approach was a little bit more focused on business interactions, but it did include non-business interactions. But I think really it's good for anyone to read to get a better understanding of why we avoid conversations, what we can do to do better in those difficult conversations that we need to have, but so often avoid having. The next book, number five, August 20th, Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. And I just really enjoyed his writing overall, uh, but is also a book a lot about meditation, mindfulness, and his own experience going through it. And his own experience going through it in a way as a skeptic or someone who thought he couldn't be good at meditating, which is something a lot of people will often feel when you say try meditation. They say, oh, it's not for me or I'm not good at it. And he, in a way, felt that way. But you see his own journey and going through it and understanding how meditation is so beneficial to us 
and that even as a skeptic, you can go in there and, and experience the benefits of it. And to me, I always talk about meditation the same way you would exercise. And if you were uh, someone who came across research about how physical exercise is good for us, you'd really want to tell everyone to do it because you see that it is so beneficial for people to do, but people are still skeptical or sometimes still think it's not for them or really they won't get anything out of it. But really we all can benefit from adding that into or at least our daily routine if you can do that. Number six from September 3rd, We Should All Be Feminists by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And this was a very good book based on a TED talk that she had done uh, on feminism and this idea that feminism itself, it, it almost can sound like a bad word, has such a stigma attached to it very often of a woman who hates men or who thinks that women should be men or men should be women or things of that nature, but it doesn't at all have to be that in any way. It's actually feminism is uh, this concept that women should have equal rights to men. It's about equality, not superiority, not anger, not putting one group above or below another group. So I agree with her and that title that we should all be feminists. Uh, number seven from September 17th, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. This book, Parham had recommended to me, my brother, from a month or two before I uh, read it. And I really enjoyed the book. It got in depth about psychedelics and the new research and the reemergence of the research in psychedelics, things like magic mushrooms, but also ketamine and other things. And he, he himself, Michael Pollan, describes three times that he tried psychedelics and the experiences that he had. And it was really fascinating and related to the book I talked about to start the show, uh, something that in general I would be skeptical of, of people using these drugs that have a negative connotation, LSD and things of that sort, to have a positive experience or to even treat mental illness like treatment-resistant depression. But reading the book, you see there is something definitely very promising about it and that it might have gotten a bad reputation, not because it actually is bad, but because of how it was uh, used and maybe the propaganda even against it in the 60s and 70s. But regardless, it was a very interesting book getting into his own experiences, but also the research showing that what psychedelics can do, related again to the first uh, segment today, is to quiet the mind in a way. Because what's fascinating is that when people have these incredibly vivid experiences that they have on the psychedelics, you would think the brain is operating at a really high speed or that there's a lot of activity but it's actually quieted in a lot of ways, which is kind of interesting. So that was a really fascinating book, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. The next book, number eight, was from October 8th, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Uh, this was a fascinating book looking at morality and how we tend to think of morality as something we do using our rational mind. And I think about a moral issue and I come to the conclusion that makes the best or the most sense based on the evidence or my understanding. But really, when we look at it, morality is far more about a gut reaction that we have. So it's really more in that way emotional or about feeling than thinking. And he also talked about how when we look at the political left and right, for example, in the United States, we see that it's not that one group is moral and the other is immoral, but that they care about 
different things or they have values that are different. And so it makes you recognize that when you look at your political, for lack of a better word, or to emphasize the point, your political enemy and think they must be immoral or stupid or crazy, it probably isn't the case that they are any of those things. It's just you might value different things. And if you had their mindset or approach, you would think of things the same way. Uh, but this was a very interesting book. And I'd read a lot of research he had done or research related to the work he had done. But it was good to read this book, getting into what he originally wrote in The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. The ninth book on the list is from October 29th, The Courage to be Disliked by Ichiro Kashimi and Fumitaki Koga. And again, talk about a title that I really liked. The title jumped out at me, The Courage to be Disliked, because I think that is a really great title and great advice or something we all should wish to have, is that we should be able to have the courage to be disliked because to live our life fully and to live a life we feel good about often we have to be ready to be disliked and the book was uh, i didn't expect it to be so much about adlerian psychology but that's what it was and it was very interesting uh, also something i found fascinating in the book was the descriptions that came up of how people would sometimes choose to be unhappy about something because it was easier than facing whatever else it was they were unhappy about or anxious about, we can say. So someone might choose to stay or feel stuck at home, but really it's because they prefer staying at home and that safety. And I talk about comfort zones a lot in this show, but that comfort zone of staying home rather than facing going out and, and to face the challenges of the world. So we have to recognize that they are in some way choosing that. And this idea that we can very often create a jail for ourselves that we have the key to and we, we can walk out of any time, but we make ourselves feel like we are stuck there. But really, we can walk out. And we have to realize there's reasons why we do this because we prefer that comfort of even being unhappy than the fear and anxiety of going out there and not sure what's going to happen. And we could even fail, at least if we never try. You'll never have to worry about facing that. So it's safer not to do than sometimes to put ourselves out there. That's a different type of courage too, but there's um, a lot that, was, lot that was talked about in that book, The Courage to Be Disliked. And the 10th book uh, in this top 10 list of books of 2018 was the final book of 2018 from December 24th, Suicidal by Jesse Baring. Uh, as you can tell by the title, a very heavy book, but a very important one because it's so important for us to talk about suicide and not avoid talking about it, the ways that the suicidal mind will work or the fact that all of us could potentially be suicidal. And that's even, I remember the uh, dedication page was to the suicidal uh, part of all of us or something along those lines. But realizing that suicide is not this far distant thing another one of those us and them, that there's the them that can be suicidal and then there's us that won't ever be, and that's not the case. Uh, but also he got in-depth in trying to understand the suicidal mind, what happens and contributes to us feeling that way and taking that action, which is so unfortunate but so common. Uh, incredibly, a million people a year take their life 
in that way and from suicide. So it's something very real and something we can't avoid. And we have to talk about those things. And I was, uh, I got to, the chance to message the author, Jesse Baring, to thank him for writing that book because I really thought it was wonderful. That was Suicidal by Jesse Baring. So those were the top 10 books of 2018. Again, please feel free to send me your recommendations to add them to the list for 2019. All right, going into our last commercial break, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dovakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So it is the beginning of a new year, and many people set goals or resolutions to start the year. And on Wednesday's show, I'll talk a bit about setting smart goals we're trying to set up goals that will make it more likely for us to succeed and i personally like goals over resolutions usually resolutions are things like don't do this or um do more of this or less of this to me goals uh, as i'll talk about on wednesday's show are supposed to be set in a way first of all in the positive even if you're going to be let's say losing weight but about what you're trying to achieve but also more clearly defined because a lot of times people will do new year's resolutions like exercise more get in shape or read more and that's why even for me i wanted to read more two years ago when i set the goal but i wanted to make it more clear so i said one book a week and even i put kind of a range of how long the books should be to give an idea of what kind of reading commitment I was making. But what I want to talk about today, less about how to set the goals, which I'll talk about Wednesday, is one aspect of achieving goals, which is helping each other out or asking for help. Very often, people can have a hard time asking for help. I've talked a lot about the idea of vulnerability and especially how men can have a hard time being vulnerable and we like to sometimes feel like, I can do it on my own. I don't need anyone to help me. Uh, this is a common reason people don't go to therapy, along with, of course, the bigger stigmas of, I'm not crazy, or I don't need a therapist because I'm not like the people who are sick, or whatever else that people have about going to get help in that way. But also, it's always like, what is someone going to tell me about my life? Where as a couple, how is someone going to help us with our relationship? I can do it myself. I don't need anyone. And we often like to think we should just do everything on our own. And I'm reminded of the African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And so if you want to achieve something great, very often or almost always, you're going to need the help and support of other people. And of course, we can think of that as in big projects that people do together. But even when it comes to personal goals, the value of having accompaniment, someone to help keep you accountable, someone to stay on top of you, because we know that achieving big goals is going to be difficult. And we have these misconceptions about willpower as if it's a black and white thing. Well, I should have the willpower to do what I want to do. If I want to achieve that goal, I have to have willpower. And I should have enough willpower or my willpower should be strong enough. But we know that willpower, a lot of, like a lot of psychological constructs or things that we can experience, it's not something that is completely stable and stays in the same place. 
like your mood, which can go up and down, your willpower is not going to be always the same or always strong. You're almost definitely going to have moments of what you might want to think of as weakness, but where your willpower won't be as strong. And so because of that, we have to first have some humility and recognize, you know what, this goal that I want to achieve is not easy. And because of that, maybe I can't do it completely by myself. I might need some help, some support. And that won't make achieving it any less important or significant or meaningful. If your goal is to, for example, stop smoking, the benefits of stopping to smoke cigarettes or not smoking cigarettes anymore will still be there whether you've done it alone or whether you use a patch or use a friend or a support group or whatever it might be. Those benefits are still being there. The meaning of the goal will still be there. So we shouldn't get caught up in how we get there and I have to do it by myself, especially because we know we're less likely to get there by ourselves. So asking for help is very important. It's very different in a way, but the accountability I have of knowing I have to finish the book to talk about it on the show is very big in keeping me on top of reading a book every week. If I just told myself to do it, maybe I would still do it, but there's a good chance I wouldn't have made it as consistently as I have these two years. But knowing I have to be prepared, that accountability means I have to finish the book. And that in a way is these, I don't get to see all your faces, but all of you out there that keep me accountable. So it's good to have that in our lives. And I've had that in other areas of my life too, even when it comes to, for example, fitness or health. And right now with two of my friends, Vahid and Amin, I have uh, something we're doing together where we set goals as far as what we want to do for our fitness. And we've exchanged those goals and we have actually even daily phone check-ins to see how we're doing. And we text with each other and stay in touch because we all want to give each other that support. And I think it's going to be very helpful. And I was talking to my brother about something last night and the same topic came up that having someone keep us accountable can be very helpful. Now, sometimes people say, well, if someone tells me to do something, that makes me actually less likely to do it. So I don't want someone to tell me. And this is where we, a few things come into play. One is that our mindset is very important. If it feels like they're telling us to do something, that means we're not recognizing they're assisting us in helping our, us reach our goal. And the other part that's very important for me is that what comes first is you're asking them what they can do to help you. And that's why I tell people rather than saying, oh, well, you know, my friend, I think, you know, she wants to lose weight. So I just call her and tell her, did you work out today? Why didn't you work out today? And they say, well, it's good for her, right? Uh, and am I not saying something good? And we have to realize that our advice or our checking in, it's not just about whether it's good or not. The advice for it to be really good, it means it has to be helpful and beneficial, meaning the person has to take that in and it needs to be helpful to them. But if it's in a way that they feel attacked or they feel judged, they're not going to want to take your advice as good as it might be. And this is something I deal with a lot with parents where they say, well, I'm telling him to study isn't studying good, but it's about how you do it, when you do it, and a bunch of other things, including the relationship you have with that person that makes all the difference. But I always tell people, ask them, how can I help you? Don't just start injecting what you want to do or what you think is going to be beneficial. Say, how can I help you 
achieve your goal. If you want me to do anything, they can say, I don't want you to do anything at all. And that's up to them. But you can ask them and they might tell you, okay, I want you to come into my room at six in the morning. And even though I'm maybe not going to want to get up, you help me get out of bed because I want to go for a run three times a week. So on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you come to my room at six and you make sure I wake up. And I might even resist, but I'm telling you, I want you to push me to get me up out of bed. And this in a way is related to the concept of a Ulysses contract, meaning that we know that when the time comes to resist a temptation, we might not be able to resist it. So we have some other way or someone else or some other means of making sure we still do it. So we know we might wake up at six from the alarm, but say, oh, I want to go back to sleep because I'm too tired. So I need someone to help get me out of bed. And when we ask someone to do that for us, yes, they're the ones who are waking us up, but really it's because it's my desire for that to happen. My bigger picture goal is to get to some result. And because of that, even though it might not feel good in the moment, I'm going to want to do what that thing is that doesn't feel good. And because I know it won't feel good, I know I might need some support to get myself going. So it feels very different when you ask someone to do something, even if it doesn't feel so good, as opposed to if you just have someone give you that advice out of nowhere. The perfect example is if you get a personal trainer. If you get a personal trainer, you pay them money to tell you exactly what to do. But you don't say, who are you to tell me what to do? Why do you want to tell me what to do? Or you should go do the things you're telling me what to do. You say you actually are thankful to them for pushing you, for telling you exactly what to do, to make sure you're doing it right, to show you the right way of doing it if you're not doing it right, and all of those things. But if some random person came up to you at the gym and started saying, okay, do four sets of this and do three sets of that and use this weight and do that, you'd be like, who the heck are you to tell me what to do? Because they're just coming to you and imposing what they want onto you. Even if it's good advice, you're not going to want to take it. And that's why it makes such a difference how advice is given, and especially when it's solicited versus unsolicited, or when support is solicited versus unsolicited. So we have to remove the idea of, is my advice or my support good? Because that's not what's important. Yes, telling someone not to have the cigarette they're smoking is it better for them not to smoke that cigarette than to smoke it? Yes. But if when they're smoking, you try to grab it out of their hand and take it, they're probably going to get very angry with you and feel like you're impinging and imposing on their right to choose and to do what they want to do, even if it is unhealthy. And we have to all look at our own lives and realize there's things that all of us do that are either unhealthy or we could do something healthier. So anyone at any moment could come up to us and say, do this or don't do that. And we wouldn't like the way that feels. So for me, it's very important that we first ourselves look at our goals and what we want to achieve. And we think who can help me and how can they help me? And to ask those people for support, ask them, you know what, this is my goal. And this is how I feel I can help you, especially people that we're close with. So if you're in a relationship, husband and wife, um, or even a serious relationship where you feel very close to one another, that can be a great person to support you or sometimes family members or really close friends, those can be great people to get support from. So we should first from your own end of making your goals, make your goals, think of what they are, but then think of who can support me to make it more likely I achieve these goals. And then from the other end, we all have people in our life that we care about. We can see if they ask us, but we can also ask them, is there any way I can help you achieve this goal that you told me about? Or are there any goals that you want me to help 
you achieve or there's something I can maybe do. And again, you're asking them. You're not telling them. You're not saying this is what I'm going to do. You're asking them, I want to help you because I care about you. And hopefully it'll be reciprocal that you ask each other for that help. But we should not be afraid to ask for that help. Recognize that big goals are hard to achieve. That's why people try them again and again and they can fail because any meaningful goal is meaningful because it's hard to get there. And so because of that, we need support, we need help. So we shouldn't be afraid to ask for people to help us. And at the same time, we should be willing to give the help that the people want from us. How can I help you? How can I make it more likely you achieve your goal? I love you. I care about you. Tell me what I can do. We have to make sure we don't step on their toes and say, this is what you need. This is what I'm going to do. Or why don't you do this? Because usually that doesn't push people forward. It just pushes them down. So that was just a, a recommendation of when you make your goals, don't think you have to do it completely by yourself. You can always ask for help and support from the people that care about you and love you. And if they really do love and care about you, they'll definitely want to help you to make it more likely you achieve those goals in your life. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Again, the book of the week for this week is No Drama Discipline by Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. No Drama Discipline, the whole brain way to calm the chaos and nurture your child's developing mind. I'll be talking about that on next Monday's show. All right. Thank you to everyone who's listening out there. And to Amir here in the studio, you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.